The door opens. Cold air rushes in, and the sound of wind drowns out all other noise in the room. A crazy-looking traveler, looking weary, enters the room, pulls off what seems to be an endless bundle of clothes, pauses, and then screams, Eureka! Welcome to What Is It About the Weather podcast, where we explore the many ways that weather intertwines itself into our lives. I'm your host, Mark Jelinek. This week, we're going to be talking about weather and creativity. But before we do that, as always, hope you're having a good weather week when it comes to the weather world and its impacts and influences on your everyday life. I'm in the midst of hurricane watch. Don't think it's going to be a direct impact for me, but anytime, anytime a hurricane goes towards a major population center, there's always increased coverage, right? And we've got a bit of an unusual event here in the U.S. in that there's the potential for a hurricane making landfall kind of out Long Island into potentially the Boston, southern New England area, Rhode Island, Connecticut, that sort of thing. For those that don't know, it's not an area that gets hit very often by hurricanes. And in some ways, it's showing behavior that could be very Sandy-esque. So for those that don't remember, Hurricane Sandy was a big storm that made landfall actually in an area that I'm in and, and caused lots of flooding uh, problems in particular. You know, wind damage as well, of course, but even even still now, they're still doing repairs on the Holland Tunnel, which connects the state of New Jersey with the state of New York, particularly the suburbs of New York City to New York, because how much water just ended up in the place that couldn't go anywhere. And this could be that type of event. Now, is it going to be? It's not necessarily looking like it's going to be, but is it in the realm of possibilities? Yes, it certainly lies within the bounds of uncertainty. Which gets me back to this forecast thing that I've been watching. I know you guys are going to get tired of me talking about it by the time I actually get to doing the full diagnosis. So I'll just go along and say, based on the ongoing analysis, um, trends are downward in terms of where this forecast is going to end up. But we're not going to dwell on it this week. I wanted to get to a question that came up. Somebody posted a question, specifically Aaron did, on... The Patreon page with the last episode asking about essentially, again, you know, how far out sort of thing. Now, he posted it before he listened to the episode, and I didn't really, that wasn't the focus of the episode. So I thought I'd follow up a little bit, though, on the information I provided in that and, and talk a little bit about when we look at weather models and we analyze weather models, you know, what are we looking for in terms of saying that they've gotten better or how they've changed over time? And I you know, referenced a graphic in last week's episode, but there are different ways that forecasters are measured. Now, for some places and some systems, the focus is on point forecasts, like let's say the, the forecast at New York City or Milan, Italy or Sydney, Australia or Beijing, China or... Um, wherever it's going to be, right? The idea there that you're measuring most often either some average daily temperature or high and low temperature, and you give a grade based on how you do over time. 
And that's good and it's useful. It's particularly useful for grading what I would call um, last mile or last leg forecasting methodologies or approaches or agencies. And that can include government agencies, but it can include a bunch of private agencies who put out these kind of point forecast. And it's a way to measure one versus the other. And it's probably a reasonable way to do it since in the end, they're generally trying to reach you as an individual, whether it's you as the person or business locations or w whatever it might be. They're, the idea is the concept of giving a forecast at an individual location. However, weather models, it's a little different, right? And what we're typically looking at, that since we're covering this big spatial domain, is things more or less, and this is where that graphic comes into play from last week, more or less at a middle of the atmosphere, if you will. Now you say, well, why is that? So the standard measure that we use is something that we call the 500 millibar or 500 hectopascal, same thing, level in the atmosphere. And the reason is, is it's essentially halfway up, right? Now it doesn't necessarily translate into exactly halfway up in feet or meters, okay? But it is at a level that for the most part is above any land influences in the scheme of things. Not true, for instance, with some areas of the Himalayas, not true for every peak everywhere else by any means, certainly part of the Andes, certainly parts eh, to a lesser extent in, in North America. But more or less, it's a, it's a level of the atmosphere that's halfway up the pressure column, right? Between, you know, a thousand roughly at the surface, a little bit above that, right? We've discussed that before. And zero at the top of what we, again, this is capturing kind of that middle of the troposphere, which is where most of weather plays out. It's not where everything plays out, but anytime, you know, and you may have seen one, more than one, you know, where we, I even talked about them, these anvil clouds or where thunderstorms tend to grow and they get capped off or blown off and that tends to be at what we call the tropopause and that's you know where we start switching layers of the atmosphere and the behaviors and all that sort of thing so this is in the middle of that whole thing like i said not necessarily the middle when it comes to feet but there's another primary reason we look at it so it's it's devoid of where the land you know can disrupt the airflow but it's also kind of at the key point of where vertical motion is captured in its true vertical nature and I know that sounds a little off but we talk about divergence convergence or difluence confluence in in the weather world but just think of it this way when you have a low pressure system your air is flowing one way and when you have a high pressure system air is flowing another way right it's either in or out from those two things well if it tends to be in that air tends to go in it tends to rise up and then at the top it spreads back out and the reverse can be true the other way around so you, you get these rising and sinking motions but near the ends of the atmosphere it branches out so the flow is a little less vertical in its in its containment and a little more broad all right but because of all this, looking at the 500 millibar charts for anybody like me who's used to doing it, it can tell me a lot about the weather, okay? And, and it can tell me in a broad sense in terms of what might be coming for a different region. I'm not going to get to a specific area, but we have these wave patterns that we look at that depending on how big the signal is. And you heard me talk about long-term and short-term features or, or that sort of thing. But at 500 millibars, we can tend to see a little bit of both. So we can analyze things and get a sense of what's going on. 
And that's why we grade the weather models at this level. And that graphic talked about, and I'll put a link in the show notes that actually interviews somebody that speaks to a little bit more about it. It's, it's just a, a text-based interview, so it's a quick read if you want to do that. But it does show within that interview this graphic again and how things have gotten better. Now, Aaron specifically asked about the day four, for example, time frame and whether you can know whether thunderstorms were going to hit an area day four. And my short answer is it, it still it depends on what the driver is behind that. Sometimes we have a good sense of things that are causing, that can cause unsettled weather, let's say, a week in advance. And we can know that, yeah, maybe not down to the hour by any means, but within half a day. And yeah, sometimes those things tweak during the week. But if you've ever watched that before, sometimes, particularly it's in a day you're interested in, it doesn't seem to move, right? It continues to sit there. Whereas other times it'll move, okay? So... The real answer is, unfortunately, it depends on what the driver is of that type of event. Now, you as a person who may or may not follow weather all the time, if you're wondering what to look for, as I always tell most people, if you're looking at doing something a week down the road, make a note of it, but look the next day and see if that same weather system still exists, right? Is there still this sign of whether it's going to be rain or maybe you're just looking at what the temperatures are going to be like? And has it shifted at all? And the longer that kind of stays the same, the probably the better sense, even a further way out, right? Could be three days, four days, that you can feel pretty comfortable that it's got, the models have a grasp of what's going on. And it's not a indecisive or small feature, if you will, that might shift, okay? But even those smaller features, when you start getting down in inside three and two days, there is a lot of predictability in those things. Doesn't mean it's certain. But, I mean, there are times now when I can get a weather forecast for 48 or 72 hours down to, I would say, within an hour or two, that's pretty accurate, even including precipitation. Now, I never look to it for exact amounts, but it can give me a sense of, you know, is it going to be a rainy day? I'm planning my weekend. I want to plan a hike or a bike ride or whatever it is, and are those features there? So, Aaron, to answer your question is, a lot of it is dependent on the driver, Okay, so if we're looking at the broad, like I said, this 500 millibar level, the patterns that we see there are generally pretty good three to five days out, all right? And, and sometimes even further, depending on what it is. And this is somewhere in the, you know, can be 80% range. But if the, what's going to drive your unsettled weather is this little feature that's clipping through somewhere, then that's going to be less predictable. So do I trust forecast at five to seven days? Yeah, generally I do. But I also know enough to know that it's not set in stone and I expect some variation. And because of that, I'm not disappointed, but I still look at it and I go in a broad sense, is it going to be hot next week when I'm thinking about doing something? And I just take it in the context. And I generally try to plan around those things, recognizing that on occasion, I'll need to make changes. So hope, hopefully that puts a little more context in your question. And... We could certainly talk, I, again, I could go on this all day. I've already gone half an episode, so I'm going to put it at that, and you can follow up with additional questions if you want to. I'd be glad to try to address those. If you have additional questions, like Aaron, you can, what is it about the weather? gmail.com, reach me, Mark underscore Jelonic on Twitter, get hold of me. What is it about the weather? On Twitter, get hold of the podcast, patreon.com slash weather. Leave a message. Had a couple of them on the last episode. You can also, of course, support the podcast there. All right. 
Now, let's talk about something that came. I had no intention of doing this this week. None. I had a a completely different episode done, and I'm still going to do that one next week because I already have the thought of what it is, and it's actually something where I'm going to solicit everybody's help. So we'll get back to that. But in the short term, I came across an article or a story that just, you know, it's one of those things where I did a, I was doing some research for something completely different. And a headline popped up, and this is why I still do like things like Google, is it doesn't always give me the answer I'm looking for, and quite often it gives me one that I'm not looking for at all. And it had to do with, does weather make you more creative? And I I hadn't typed in creativity. I had typed in innovation, something about weather and innovation. This headline was there. Because one of the other things I do with Google is I do try to go to page two, three, four, and five, just to see if I'm getting, I'm missing out anything that I want to, put my eyes on and so I started looking at it and you know it's an interesting question does weather make you more creative or is it a certain type of weather that makes you creative so I started digging a little refining that search or is it something as simple as key the key thing being getting outside right like today I have a day where I've got some rain probably coming in from this broader hurricane that's influencing the region it's not a hurricane yet. It's only a tropical storm. Let me correct myself. But I've told you before, rainy days tend to make me creative. Yet today, I don't know that it's particularly making me creative. Maybe because I don't have the window open. Maybe because I'm not experiencing everything, <laughs> including the humidity that goes with that. So how do we get there? How do we determine whether that's really the case? And it's tricky. This is a tricky thing to do. All right. So once I, like I said, I saw the initial story, I read through it, found it interesting, but I I did a little bit of initial search because you know me, I don't like to just rely on just that one article, if at all possible. I like to get a little more context to put around it. And this is not a new topic by any means. And we've talked about weather's relation to our emotional brain state before and doing anything with brain state is difficult, right? But connecting specific weather to specific human behavior is tricky because it can be hard to isolate the direct effect, okay? And then add on top of that, statistics inherently are tricky, right? Trying to get that I know 90% of the time something over here causes something over there, it's not an easy thing to do, but statistics, depending on how you evaluate it, and if you don't use the right methodology for the task at hand, can portray something that just is not really there. And we see this a lot of times when you can see a statistic that, you know, and you'll hear something like this, right? Like every time it rains, the price of bubble gum goes up 50%, right? And it's just, it's an artifact. It's not real. There's no causal relationship there. It just is one of those freaks of nature that happens to exist. And if you look at enough things enough times, you can find statistical relationships that aren't relevant, okay? But there have been a lot of studies on this topic over the year about creativity and innovation and the role weather plays. And the general findings have been over time, when you're trying to make this individual component connection, that they've been inconclusive. All right. And I looked at studies back over the last 30 years to see what what I came up with. And We know, and we've talked about before, about the seasonal disorder, and there does really seem to be a connection between maybe times of the year, the amount of sunlight people are getting exposed to, and how they feel, okay? 
but again, the magnitude and the direct connection can be maybe impossible ever to prove, at least with where our technologies are today. There was also a study within that that took it a step further. It was something in the past few years, and I, you know, I found a, a, another kind of story or article that related to it, and both of these are in the show notes, that focused a little bit more maybe on the outside element, right? Getting into nature, at least for some amount of time every day, and in particular, what it does to our biomarkers related to stress. And what we do generally find is that people that you know are under stress don't behave the same way that those that are a little more relaxed. And that's you know believed to maybe trigger more innovation. Now, you could argue that in a stressful situation, you're innovative. And maybe you are in the context of at all costs you do something. But whether that's something that's a patentable idea or something that really drives a revolutionary shift or behavior is less likely, I guess, is, is what you know, we have found over time. But being outside and it making you less stressed and being some sort of weather and it being making you creative and innovative, right, is maybe a different step. So is it about the sunshine? And that's, you know, what one of these studies really focused on. Or is it a temperature thing, which is this other paper I found kind of, that was where they started, right? Is they started with the idea of it being related to temperature profiles. Or is it just not that simple? Okay. And that's what I, maybe I liked most about this final study is they found this interesting relationship. So they, they took nations, I think it was like 155 nations around the globe. And they said, more or less, when, when you look at these things, what is their level of innovation? And you know, they have some measure for, for what they're defining is that. It, you know, different studies have slightly different things. But the long and the short of it was, they had a J curve, and if you've never seen one of those, it's just one of those things where it starts at a certain level, it comes down, it gets really miserable, and then it ramps right up and everything looks good. And you see these a lot of times in statistics, and that's why it's kind of a shape that it does kind of look like a J. But what was a measure on one side was kind of this creative, innovative aspect of things. And then on the other axis, right, so over the what creates the J shape, if you will, was where these countries sat latitudinally compared to the equator, okay? So more or less what they found is, yep, there's some innovation near the equator, and then it gets really bad as you get a little dispersed from the equator, and then it ramps up from there. It just keeps going up and up and up. Now, why is that? Why would that be a thing, and is it real? Now, on one hand, it points to, and this is what the, they're talking about in a temperature standpoint, is you've got these areas, not necessarily, you know, near the equator may be okay. And if you've ever looked at a map of the globe, you'll see that near the equator, a lot of times the weather is very different. And as we branch away from the equator, we actually see some of the more hostile or what people would traditionally consider some of the more hostile areas on Earth, where you start to see more desert, so less rainfall in some of these areas, and the more extreme heat, not right at the equator, but away from the equator a little bit. And then things tend to slowly modify back to a more moist, a cooler environment. So why do we see these things? 
what was their reasoning behind it, and is it valid? Okay. We're going to take a step here and say we're going to migrate from the idea of weather being individual events to climate, right? So how these areas sit, you know, when you're looking at temperature and particularly when you're trying to study something, you're, you're wanting to look at a repeat behavior. And sometimes we can do that with weather events, you know, every time there's a tornado or a tropical cyclone. But generally, if you're looking at something like this, like innovation or something like that, you, you can't, it's hard to grasp an individual weather event or even a season necessarily. So you do tend to look at broader range, this past weather, right? It's lumped together in climate. And their findings generally suggest, like I said, some connection between temperature, that it's actually in that middle range, that maybe where temperature hits more of an extreme, not so much where it's hot or versus where it's cold, but it get, it goes from, let's say, in the grand scheme of things, it goes from warm to hot to cooling. But they found this very strong connection between, as things got cooler, that countries were more innovative, like Sweden or, or Switzerland, but they also found the same, and they found it in, as they said, every hemisphere, so east, west, north, south. They found similar things in, in areas like New Zealand or Australia, but they also did find this connection near the equator with countries like Singapore, right? That yeah, I've talked with multiple people over the years about Singapore and, and living there, and I just think to myself, I don't know what the the appeal is from a weather standpoint for me, right? Because I also know it's very hot and buggy. And they're like, but you can be inside all the time. Okay, that's fine. So maybe that's the answer. But that kind of points to another thing, right? Is it is it over time? And this was one of the offshoots of this, and I think I'll get to in a future episode, is there's some real innovation when it comes to having to survive cold weather that we've learned to deal with maybe not in the modern era, but that made it easier for us to continue to be innovative as we entered an industrial age. But it's just not as simple as temperature. That's really more of what it pointed to. So they highlighted a couple other things. One was about the idea that disease plays. Okay. And then, of course, they were wise enough to say, you just can't ignore wealth. You can't ignore that wealthy countries are going to be better equipped to deal with installing air conditioning, if nothing else. Or having systems that can keep you know, workers warm when they're doing things that where they might be cold otherwise. And they came up with this kind of proposed solution that talks about how those different elements, and they drew this kind of triangle pyramid looking thing in the chart, and they talked about how that ultimately got to innovation. But their long and the short of it is that you don't want to be in the worst temperature places, but it's probably more important to be able to be in places where the temperature doesn't encourage disease, which tends to happen in that that area as you get away from the equator a little bit. Okay. Now, some of those areas, that's, you know, in that transition zone, I talked a little bit earlier about the really dry areas or, or the desert areas, but also in areas that are maybe too dense jungle-wise. But all these things, and we know this even in the mid-latitudes is, there are certain diseases that tend to do well more temperate climates and spread more easily in temperate climates than they do as you get into areas that have a harder winter or a harsher, you know, extreme towards the end of, you know, whatever their solar cycle looks like. 
And this tried to bring all that together. Now, you're going to ask me, do I think it proves it? I don't know that it does. Do I think they might be onto something? Yeah, I think they do have something there that is a reasonable stab at you know what are some of the things that collectively make up a profile that can lead to higher innovation or higher creativity because it's not just about creating certain things you know like I said one of these studies was very much on the financial aspect of how you know getting more sunshine specifically helped with that right but part of it is just are we setting ourselves up, our minds up for being, and this could be artistic as well. Are we setting our, ourselves up to be able to get to a place where we're not just doing the rote work of every single day, right? Where we have to go through a process or we have to go through a structure to think outside the box. Now, I would love to think that weather plays a role. I don't know that it will ever be possible to definitively say that. Do I think these Researchers, a couple of them have made a first step. Yeah. Do I think there's a long way to go before making a connection ultimately between weather and creativity? Proving it? Yeah. Do I think it's real? Sure, because I know I know myself. But I also know that I sit on the on a spectrum that might blend out an average. Right? My ability to be creative is better when the weather is distinctive and unusual. And cycling through not a normal sunny blue sky day, right? That's not where I look for myself to be creative. I look myself maybe to be better athlete or better at other, you know, maybe I'm in, a, I'm in a better overall mood. I don't know. I don't think I am, but maybe I am with those things. So that's why it makes it tri- tr- excuse me, tricky and difficult to make that definitive connection sometimes. But I think it's a first step. And it's research that we can build on and go forward. I don't know. But the next time, the very next time that little light bulb goes off over your head, you know the one I'm talking about, the little cartoon, little light bulb we see all the time. Just remember, there's much more to weather than the weather itself.